Thank you, uh, Reverend Johnson, uh, for that uh, warm yet interesting introduction. Um, I'm just, uh, as they say in some parts of the world, tickled pink. I'm just tickled pink to be here for multiple reasons. Um, one, because Terry has threatened me over the years uh, that I need to come. And so actually, it really is my honor, uh, Terry, to be with you. I have such high esteem for you and for your ministry, for your faithfulness to the Lord and to the Reformed faith. Uh, many years, I've, I've uh, used a lot of your materials to help me think through a lot of important things for ministry. So thank you. Thank you for your faithful ministry to the Lord and to this church. Uh, I continue to be amazed. I was just looking through the booklet that lists all the missionaries you all support. And I stopped counting after like 35. What an amazing testimony uh, of your heart for, for, for both home and world missions. And in fact, in many ways, me standing before you is a testimony of God's goodness to the Southern Presbyterian Church. I'm a Presbyterian minister, and I stand here because of Presbyterian missionaries that went to Korea 150 years ago. One of the most important missions moments of the last 200 years or so is what happened in Korea at the late 19th century, early 20th century, when some very brave and courageous missionaries from the Northern Presbyterian Church, and then seven, they were called the Seven Pioneers, Louis Boyd Tate and six others, went to Korea in 1892 without much except for their Bible, the truth, and a heart for God and a love for people who need the gospel. And so I'm here as a testimony to that, to a church like yours who decided we want to support missionaries to go to Korea. I don't even know where that is, but these people are going to get on a boat and go to, go to Korea before it split into North and South Korea. And there was an amazing revival. It's actually called the Pyongyang Revivals of 1907, where thousands upon thousands were coming to faith just through a simple preaching of the gospel. And you read these testimonies of these missionaries. Saying, what was the secret? What did you do? They're like, I don't know. I just preached the word and told them to repent and believe. Really? There's no other fancy way? No. You just repent and believe because our message is a message of grace. And so I feel honored to be among you today as one of the sons of the Southern Presbyterian Church, one of the grandsons who are now coming back, coming back to thank you and your forefathers and foremothers who had the heart to send missionaries to Korea. And so I'm just so grateful to be here to eat good Southern barbecue. Thank you for that too. <laughs> I love good Southern barbecue. I'm glad in God's providence we're also here with Vincenzo and Judith Caluccia. Vincenzo was one of my students at seminary when I was teaching there full time. And dear, dear friends, and like a younger brother and sister to me, and to see them back here supported by you, it's just everything comes full circle. And nothing happens by accident, right? And no matter how difficult our life has been over these last several years, and it's been tough, hasn't it? From a global pandemic to political polarization, everybody's just tired. I don't know about you, I'm tired. So how do we witness or testify, right? The, the, the theme is testify to the gospel of grace. How do we testify to the gospel of grace? When you're tired, you're fatigued, you're angry, you're frustrated, you're sad, you look around, your loved ones don't go to church, and you wonder, your neighbors, 
Because you believe. You believe in the simple truth that Jesus came to save sinners. And for me, I need that reminder. That reminder of the gospel of grace. That's nothing we've done. But it's all that God has done for us. And when we understand that beautiful message of grace, then we can continue to trust and testify. And so that's my goal over these next several days, is to encourage you, as you think about where God has placed you in your own circles of influence, in your families, in your workplace, in your church, in this town of Savannah, beautiful town, by the way. I got a chance to walk around. What a beautiful town. As God has placed you here, and you want to also testify to the gospel of grace, I want to encourage you to not lose heart, to keep trusting, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? And I haven't even started preaching yet, and I'm already going. <laughs> Terry, I have only 20 minutes. I apologize. Okay, thank you. So I didn't, I'd like to encourage you, um, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to Exodus 17. And I'd like to just reflect a little bit about the people of Israel. They're going through a very difficult part of their life. We call the wilderness wanderings. They're in the wilderness wanderings. They're, they're not in Egypt. They're not yet in Palestine. So they're in the desert. And in this desert experience, they're, they're challenged. They actually think they're going to die. And yet they're still called to trust and to testify, just like we are. And in many ways, I feel like we're in the same kind of situation like the Israelites. We're going through our wilderness wanderings, waiting to go to our heavenly home. And yet God calls us to keep trusting and to keep testifying. And what's going to help you do that? What's going to motivate you? Simple yet profound, the gospel of grace. So I want to introduce you once again to the gospel of grace. Because ultimately this gospel of grace is both our message, the ultimate message that we must give as we testify, and it's ultimately our motivation. What else will motivate us but, but, but grace? So I'm going to read from Exodus 17, talk a little bit about it, and hopefully encourage you as we think about testifying to the gospel of, of grace. This is Exodus 17, 1 through 7. People of God, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water shall come out of it so the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us now by the power of your spirit that we might be encouraged to keep trusting and testifying because of the gospel of grace, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
before I give some words about this passage, a little bit of background might be helpful to kind of situate where we are. Again, the people of Israel are, are moving from, from Egypt to, to Canaan. This is a 40-year journey, and during this time, a lot of difficulties occur. And as you know, as you've read through the book of Exodus, you know that God does this to test their faith. And in many ways, we have a lot of parallels, right? We are pilgrims. This is not our heavenly home. No matter how beautiful Savannah may be, or San Diego may be, or Corona Del Mar may be, it's a beautiful place. This is not our home. So while we're in this in-between time, we face a lot of difficulties in this wilderness experience. And this is where Israel is. And they go through yet another test of their faith. And God wants to encourage them as he becomes more gracious than ever before. So here they are in this, can I call it, this desert courtroom. Why do I say, de why do I say desert courtroom? Because actually what's happening here is more than just the Israelites being mad about their situation and complaining. That's happen actually happening a lot during this journey. They murmur, they grumble against Moses, against God. But here's something much more serious is happening. In verse 2, we read that they quarreled against Moses. That's a very specific Hebrew word used in legal situations. It's actually a better translation as they brought a lawsuit against Moses. Wait a minute, Julius. We're not in a courtroom. How can you say such a thing? Well, that's actually the word used in the rest of the Old Testament when God brings a lawsuit against Israel, when they disobey the covenant. God says, I bring a lawsuit against you because I want to charge you against your sin. I want to bring charges against you. So that's actually what's happening here. The Israelites bring a charge against Moses and God. Well, what exactly is this charge? Well, interestingly enough, look at verse 4. If you look at verse 4, Moses is afraid of stoning. You see that little detail? That's not the normal thing you do when you're thirsty and your, your leader doesn't give you something to drink. This is actually a specific punishment for treason or breaking of a contract. So what's happening here? Here is Israel with their children, their livestock, their family, their finances are all in jeopardy. Right? Children, are we going to die? Children are going to die. My livestock are about to die. They're in a really precarious situation. They're in the desert. They're about to die. Their family's in trouble. Their finances are in trouble. So what do they do? They said, you know what, God? I don't know if I can trust you to lead us. I'm not sure if I can trust you to be in a relationship with us. So you know what? We want out. We want out of this relationship. That's actually what's happening here. Because of this word quarrel and because of the stoning, we knew something serious is happening here. And I'll give you some more clues as to why this is a drama, a legal drama hap actually happening. But this is how severe this temptation and trial is for them. And perhaps you've been in those kinds of situations. You know, those dark hours of the night when you can't sleep because you can't make sense of why these things are happening to you or to your loved one as you're watching a loved one die from cancer, or you lose a child to a miscarriage, your, your finances are about to go under, you trust the Lord, you follow him, and yet these things are happening, and there are moments in life, aren't there, when you cry out like the Israelites, Lord, are you among us or not? We've all been there. And that's how severe this trial is. It's so severe that they actually say, you know what, God, I can't do this anymore. 
I can't. So actually, the Israelites give God divorce papers. That's how severe the situation is. This is how severe their wilderness wandering is at this moment. They cannot trust. Can they testify? Forget about it. Testify to the God of grace? They can't even trust in the God of grace, let alone be in a relationship with the God of grace. So they bring this charge against Moses and against, frankly, God. But the desert is an arid place, isn't it? And if you've been in those spiritual desert situations, you know it's an easy place to dry up and complain against God and even maybe abandon God. And that's actually what's happening here. So the charge has been recorded. The arguments have been given. What's next? Usually in a legal situation, after the charges have been got done, the, the arguments have been given. What's, there's a sentencing. Or I mean, a, a verdict is rendered, right? Guilty or not guilty. Are you following me? Does this make sense at all? Yeah? You know, I'm a Korean, so I need some affirmation. Okay? So tell me you're listening and paying attention. All right? So charge has been recorded. The arguments have been given. The verdict. So... The verdict, God says in verse 5, notice, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders in Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Very significant. Two details there that you need to pay attention to. First, he said, take some of the elders of Israel. Why that detail? Because of the legal situation is very serious. They are necessary as a court or jury to ensure that justice happens. Does that make sense? So the elders are called. Now the people are like, oh, this is getting serious. The elders are coming. And then God said, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Yet another detail. You don't miss on those little details. Why is that detail there? Because remember, when Moses used that staff to strike the Nile River, it was a strike of justice. It was a punishment against Pharaoh's disobedience, remember? Remember? Pharaoh, let my people go. No, okay, right? One plague. Pharaoh, let my people go. No, second plague. And then one of those plagues of judgment was turning the Nile River into blood, their life source. They needed the Nile. The Nile was so important to them, and now it was a river of death, filled with blood, not a river of life. And God says, take that staff, because it's going to be used once again for justice. It's getting serious, isn't it? What's happening here? But who exactly is the guilty party? The Israelites had recently witnessed one of the most incredible events in their history, right? They're fleeing from Pharaoh and his soldiers. They come upon the Red Sea. Remember this? Two million Israelites stuck now. The Red Sea in front of them. Pharaoh and the Egyptian soldiers breathing on their necks. Moses raises his hands. Red Sea opens up and close to two million people walk through. And then Moses brings his hands down, engulfs all the Egyptians to their death. And there the Israelites stood on the opposite shore, hearing the cries of the soldier, seeing the dead wash up on the shore, tasting the victory of the Lord. And yet, here at the first sign of trouble, what do they do? They doubt. They doubt God's provision. They doubt God's protection. They got, doubt God's power. At the first sign of trouble, they turn, don't they? Wait, wait a minute. This is not the first time they were thirsty, remember? For those of you, just go a couple chapters back. They actually were thirsty before, but the water was too bitter. Moses throws in a log. It becomes sweet to drink. Yay, Moses! 
Yay, God, you're the best. Couple days later, we're thirsty again. I can't trust you anymore. I'm about to die. My children are about to die. My goodness. Wait, they've been hungry before, remember? They're in a wilderness wandering. And yet God miraculously opens up the sky, brings down quail and manna double fold so they don't have to work on the Lord's day, on the Sabbath. God is so thoughtful. Yay, God! I'm going to trust you. I'm going to testify of your grace. You're so good to us. And yet, again, at the first sign of trouble, they doubt. They don't just doubt. They sow their seeds of doubt to reap what? They reap what? What do they harvest? Rebellion and downright rejection. And friends, isn't Jeremiah right? Jeremiah was so right when he said, our hearts are so fickle. Who can know these deceitful hearts of ours? And friends, are we any different? The truth is we're just like the Israelites. And that's really one of the takeaways from this story is that in our moments of trial and tribulation, yet difficult ones, no doubt, our hearts are so prone to wander. So God, we need your help. So what is God going to do here? God's not the guilty party. He's been faithful all the time. And here's the irony of the story. It's the Israelites that bring a charge and want a verdict against Moses and God. But in this wonderful story of grace, there's an irony. It's actually the people of Israel who are on trial. They're the ones who turn their back on the relationship. They're the ones who sinned against the Lord by not trusting. What will happen? You go from charge to verdict. Now we come to the sentencing. But wait, Julius, a sentence for treason is death. Death by stoning. What will happen to the people of Israel? What about God's promise that he will multiply them as the sands of the seashore? That out of them will come the Messiah, the hope for all generations. If God wipes out the Israelites, what happens? Does he have another people in mind? You know, maybe I ought to go with those Canaanites. They're a strong bunch. Yeah, but there's that baby killing thing that's a little problematic. Does he have another plan? Here we see the triumph of God's grace at Massa and Meribah in this desert courtroom. The kind of triumph of grace that will motivate you to keep moving forward, trusting God in difficult times as you testify in your circles, whether it be in your own home, in your neighborhoods, in your church. How will you testify to God's grace when you remember his grace given to you, new Israel. In verse six, we read, God tells Moses to take the staff and strike the rock. But before he tells him to strike, there are two prepositions. He says, I will stand before you and I will stand on the rock. Two seemingly insignificant words, prepositions, yet make all the difference in not only understanding this passage, but helping us gain a new paradigm or a new perspective on how we can remain trusting and relying and resting on God's grace so that we can testify to that grace. God says before, I will stand before you. Again, in this legal context, that's an amazing statement. Throughout the Old Testament, guess who goes before the judge? The guilty party. The one who will receive the sentencing. In this amazing trial, God says, I will go before. And then he says, I will stand on the rock. 
What is he saying? By saying that, he's saying, I will symbolically identify myself with that rock. For this moment, I am that rock. That shouldn't be too surprising because throughout scriptures, in Deuteronomy and Psalms, God is called our rock. But when we, when we sing songs in Sunday school about God being our rock, we, it's more about him being a sure foundation, never changing, right? In this particular, but there's also, because of this context, as well as other passages of scripture, there's some interesting connotations of God being a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. Somebody who gives us new birth. God is our rock. And he has fathered us. He has given us new birth. And I think that's what's happening here. Why? Because someone must die for the promises to continue. And in this amazing trial, God says, I will sacrifice myself and be your substitute. You cannot die for your sin. So I will, though innocent, will take your punishment be your substitute, and be your sacrifice. And so when Moses lifts that staff and strikes it on that rock, it is a strike of judgment, of justice against sin that God did not deserve. And yet he takes it. Why? Because of grace. Because of grace. We didn't deserve it at all. Israel didn't deserve it. And yet he stands in their place. And by his stripes, we are healed. And remember, in the fullness of time, remember what the Apostle Paul will write. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, in reflecting upon this passage, he will say, they, the Israelites, are drinking the same spiritual rock that we drink from. And then he says, and that rock that was struck, and water, water came out so that people can live and not die, that rock was Christ. Friends, this story is about you and me who go through very difficult wilderness wanderings and yet are called upon to testify to the gospel of grace. How can you do that? You do it by remembering, by remembering the wondrous grace of our Savior who took our sins upon himself upon that cross. And when that sword was thrust into his side, what came out of his side? Blood and water. Life-giving blood, life-giving water. Coincidence? Or planned all along by your gracious God, who knew that you would be sitting here tonight in Savannah, Georgia, listening to a Korean preacher, whose English is pretty good, huh? <laughs> Tell you about the grace that saved his family, the grace that caused missionaries to go from Places like Georgia, South Carolina, to a foreign land called Korea because they believed in this gospel of grace. Because it changed their lives. And they're willing to bet their life on it and go to places like Italy, to Korea, to call you to support missionaries not only here in America but all over the world. So you can be praying but also testifying to this wondrous grace in your own lives. I'm sure in this room, there are many of you here who have broken hearts over loved ones that don't know Jesus. Friends, have hope. Have hope. Because God is good. God is great. He has given you his son. Have hope in this son who sacrificed himself, stood in your place, and was struck 
so that we never have to. He took our penalty, and now he provides you with strength to keep walking, pilgrim. So pilgrim, keep walking, keep testifying, and keep trusting because our God is good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these incredible words, this incredible story of the Israelites and how they found hope to keep testifying because of ultimately what you did for them by giving them your grace. Thank you for giving us grace through your Son, our Savior Jesus, indeed the rock of ages, who was split for us so that we might have life. And now as we look to Jesus, to his resurrection, his powerful resurrection from the dead, may we remind ourselves that we have now that resurrection blood coursing in our veins. And though this life is difficult, we can continue to testify to the gospel of grace as we continue to trust in you. For we ask this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.